You're now listening to reformradio.co.uk. Radio. So, there's a story that gets told about millennials all the time. We're entitled and we don't appreciate what we have, and really, we're all little snowflakes, and all we want is to be served first at the candy store. Let me show you what I mean. This happened in the news last year. A 30-year-old man in New York was evicted by his own parents. He wouldn't move out of his family home, so his parents called the police. And then, quite soon, of course, Fox News leaped at the story. Well, 30-year-old Michael Rotondo lived in his parents' basement for eight years rent-free. His parents kept asking him to leave. They asked five times. They gave him a thousand bucks to help him find a new place, but he did not take the hint. So finally, his parents went to court. Now a judge has ordered Rotondo to leave. The boy, man-child, claims he shouldn't have to leave because he doesn't want to leave. It's a sad, brave new world that we should resist at all costs, but whatever. But it wasn't just Fox News. CNN aired an eight-minute interview with Michael. And after what was mostly a very boring eight minutes, the host, Brooke Baldwin, ends on this. There are a lot of people who have read about your story, and the, the thought bubble is what is up with this millennial generation that you guys seem so entitled. What would you say to, to those critics? I would say that I'm really not... Uh, so that made me wonder, are millennials entitled, or is there a different story that could be told here? Imagine this. You're 28 years old, and this song is topping the charts. It's 1997. Chances are that you own your own place. In fact, more than 60% of 28-year-olds own their own place. Twenty years later, it's 2017. You're still 28 years old, but now the chances that you own your own place are half of what they were 20 years ago. Only 30% of 28-year-olds can afford their own place. Buying your own place relative to your income is now twice as expensive. Millennials were supposed to have it all. We were all going to be astronauts, and for Christmas we wanted world peace. But now, we've grown up. What I want to do in this show is look at the biggest issues that this generation faces, which matters now more than ever, because any day, millennials will be the biggest group of voters in the world. Today's episode, Playing House. I will look at what it's like to be a millennial in the current housing market. I'm Seraphine Dingus. Welcome to When I Grow Up. Eighteen long years, my party has been in opposition. Today, enough of talking. It is time now. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane another financial titan has fallen. This time, it's the ailing British mortgage giant HBOS, and we are calling it iPhone. There's no universally agreed upon definition of what a millennial is. Depending on the statistic, the ages can range from being born between 85 and 95 to being born between 80 and 2000. But as far as I'm concerned, being a millennial is a cultural frame that you grew up in. The actual age doesn't matter that much. So for this show, I'm going to say that if you still remember a friend's landline number by heart, or if you've ever owned a Walkman, then you qualify as a millennial. Coming up. I will talk to a property consultant about the current housing market and we will have a look at one possible solution to part of the housing crisis. But first, let's start with chapter one. Spare some change. What is the financial situation like for this generation? In terms of investigating deprivation, we see that there is disparity as you progress in time from the 60s onwards when it comes to those aids. 20 to 30 in particular, but then those aged 30 to 40 or 40 to 50. So the, there are gradients across the whole 
age distribution, whether you focus on millennials or not. I'm Evan Kodopadelis. Uh, I'm a professor in data science and health services research at the University of Manchester. Evan studies deprivation. He's interested in the social and economic status of society. In particular, he's interested in young people in the north of England. You wrote an article that was titled Give Millennials a Break. Who's giving millennials a hard time? Everybody at the minute, in my view. So um, there is a combination of factors, I think, that make it very difficult for millennials to actually accumulate wealth, if that's what you want to do, of course. For example, there's a housing crisis in the UK, their employment opportunities are poor, so we hear all the time by the Tories that unemployment rates are an all-time low, but these opportunities for employment are relatively poor, so they come with very poor rewards, they're part-time, uh, they're zero-hour contracts. And on the back of that, these young people When they retire, they will never enjoy the same benefits that their parents did or have the same level of pensions. That's one of the things that your research shows that one of the biggest challenges for the younger generation is, as you state, not actually competing for jobs with, say, immigrants or each other, but actually paying for the very high pensions of the generation before them. So uh, over time, uh, the terms of a pension have changed. So if you think that the, there are people out there that have a last salary pension, which is unheard of now. So basically, if my salary is £2,000 at the end of my employment, that's what I get as a pension. Now that's unheard of. And not many people, not many young people are aware of that, that now it's only a, a certain percentage of what your salary is based on your contribution. So it's much lower. So uh, employers not only offer young people worse employment terms in terms of their pensions, uh, but that disparity goes into contributing to the pensions of those who have already been retired on very different terms. So it's a combination of factors. And of course, we have the housing crisis as well. The sooner you get on the property ladder, the bigger an advantage you have. You're able to invest your money in buying another property. So we see a lot of speculation when it comes to second and third properties as well, uh, which People that have no other opportunities to invest obviously see it as a, as a viable uh, investment. But again, money brings more money and young people have nothing um, to start with. So in a way, the generation before, in the way that they lived and in the way that they decided on policy, created a sphere that self-perpetuated their own wealth. Politically, uh, it infuriates me that uh, I see people who grew up on benefits, who enjoyed the benefits, who enjoyed socialist governments, and they vote completely against that to prevent others from having the same opportunities. Now, no matter what's your political stance, I think that should annoy you, as it does me. But it's not only that generation, it's the generation before as well. And it's changed, globalization, it's computerization of everything. These jobs would have gone no matter what. It's not policy related. The fact that we have computers, we have the internet taking over everything, putting retailers out of business. Uh, so it, it's not just the policies, but we need some protection. We, we need some a safety net for those people who do not have the same opportunities. Let's stop here for a minute and take this in. What Evan Contopantilis is saying is that basically the deck is stacked against millennials. The older you are, the more likely you are to have had the chance to buy an affordable house in your 20s. You're also more likely to have a higher pension when you eventually retire. But the rules that existed when the baby boomers and the Gen Xers were in their 20s and 30s no longer exist for us. And this has consequences, especially on the property market and the way that young people live. My starting point really was to focus on young people's experiences of leaving home. And what was uh, very noticeable was that many young people, particularly graduates back then, were um, when they did leave home, they were moving into student accommodation, but many of them would then continue to share after they'd left. And increasingly, even non-graduates were finding it difficult to move out independently, to live on their own or with, their, with a partner. Um, and so shared living was becoming more and more um, almost a norm amongst uh, that particular generation, which I guess would have been Generation X. This is Sue Heath. 
I'm a professor of sociology at the University of Manchester um, and I've researched housing and young people's issues to do with young people and housing for the best part of 25 odd years. Um, so I've got a fairly reasonable sense of how things have shifted and changed over that time. Sue has written a book about shared living and in it she points out that shared living and the troubles that come with it have been a fixture in popular culture. But that's not what I'm here to talk to you about. Okay, I, I need to borrow some money. Oh, I don't know, Monica, you know. Come on, I just, I, I need it for some rent and, and some other bills. Oh, wow. Uh, well, how much? What is it, Lillian? Who is this? I'm your new roommate. You I don't make noise! I, I don't miss drive. fish! Honey, you also don't pay the rent. Because I don't have money. So this is the future, the three of us. Do we need a name? The winners. Winston and the Cuties. Yeah, I don't think we need a name. But we do need a fourth roommate because I oh think... Oh my God! This loft is enormous! Thank you, Winston. I was going there, but it was going to be a long walk. This place is way too big for three people. What about your dream of having an in-loft multi-purpose room? Multi-purpose rooms can't pay rent. That's the only purpose they don't serve. So let's get a roommate. Well, CC and Apart from the now seemingly anachronistic laughing tracks, not that much <laughs> has changed from the early 90s. There was friends there to new girl. Yeah, they all live in shared homes and they all find it pretty hard to pay rent. Why is shared housing so ubiquitous in our entertainment? I think it speaks to um, a number of a number of themes. I suppose. I guess most you know, most people to crave independence um, to a large extent, particularly if they if they have been living in student housing and there's that dream of you know when I graduate I'm going to get a place of my own. Um, and so it's a sort of classic comedy situation, I guess, that those hopes are, uh, are thwarted and one has to continue to to, to live with uh, with with sort of relative strangers, if you like. So is the underlying conflict in some ways also that people generally don't actually want to live in shared housing but they just can't afford not to? I think that's true for many people. The first project I did around shared housing was back in the end of the late 90s and we spoke in that study to mainly young graduates, young professionals who had, had moved straight out of university straight into living with other young people, often people they'd studied with and in many cases they were more than happy to share for a while. 20 years on, it's that still goes on, but I think that post-1998, post-recession, it's much more about um, constraint and, yeah, on, an inability to pay the rent on your own. Of course, if your parents did particularly well, you get a head start. Whereas people whose parents were already struggling now have it even harder. So this amplifies the injustices of previous generations. And this usually affects people who are already sidelined in life. But don't we still have it comparatively easy? I always assume that overall we're wealthier and more prosperous today than in any time period before. So I asked Evan Contrapantilis about this. So where does the sense of what we as a generation are entitled to come from? What about maybe a hundred years ago? Are we not in general more healthy, more prosperous overall as a society than people were then? Yes, but we see new divisions. Um, so, for example, even though overall um, the UK, people in the UK have been getting healthier, um, mortality rates have dropped, we see divisions between, say, the North and the South, and all these are deprivation-driven. So, for the first time since following the global crisis of 2008, and the austerity policy of 2011, we saw standardized mortality rates, which is a measure through which to see if overall people live longer. It plateaued after 2011, especially in the north. So th there was a constant drop since the 40s with people living longer. Following the austerity policies and following the global crisis, that stopped, that plateaued, which is bad news. And we see that primarily in the north. And that was driven by deprivation. In our research, we saw that it's lo there's lots of suicides, there's lots of heavy drinking, drugs, uh, even cancers that are related to deprivation, say, of smoking. I wanted to know the same thing from Sue Heath. Where does our generation's expectation towards living and housing come from? Have we maybe come to expect too much? Has the sort of aspiration to be middle class become too big? A hundred years ago, or maybe 150 years ago, most families would have had to sometimes share a bed, and having your own room would be unheard of. 
how can we maybe justify our our demands as a new generation? Well, that's a really interesting uh, question to ask. I think I guess one um, one thing to think about is the point of comparison. So many young adults, young millennials, millennials today, Generation X or the generation before, their own. F- parents would have experienced very different forms of of um housing pathways after they'd first left home they you know chances are the, that parental generation probably had trajectories where they would leave home and move in almost immediately with a partner and expected to buy a house at a very early age in, in that period and in the UK context the British context there is this very strong emphasis on home ownership as an ideal um, I think that, in a sense, feeds into the, the discontent and the frustration of, of millenni- the millennial generation because they do look at their parents' generation and see that they had very different experiences of the housing market. Um, and I guess, you know, it's it's not even the case that owner occupation being on one's own being unaffordable but it's now the case that even renting in the private sector is is unaffordable maybe that's not such a big ask to be able to you know rent a place on your own or with your partner today more young people are going to university than ever but still they can't afford the standard of living of their parents generation back to evan is it still worth it to go to university or is it a sense of if everyone's a superhero, no one's a superhero, but to get to that level, you still need to go to university? If you are in a competitive market and the mid-range jobs are gone and are going at a fast rate, you either be at the top of the food chain or at the bottom. If you don't have a university degree, I think, and you cannot compete with others for those highly specialized jobs in engineering, in computer science, in in marketing, you will be limited to jobs with very little or no skills involved that obviously will pay accordingly. So my advice to my children would be get as many degrees as possible. If you don't feel academic, get a job where you can, say, be your own boss, learn a trade, be a plumber or be an electrician. But the competition is getting worse and worse because the jobs are becoming less and less. Evan does not think that immigration is to blame for this loss in jobs. The level, I mean, immigration is 5% of the population. It's been blown out of proportion here because of the dynamics of English politics in the main, not even British politics. So it's not the competition with young immigrants, I think, that uh, young Brits have to worry about. It's the fact that these jobs are, are gone. The jobs that their parents did are not there in place anymore. The whole situation we've just outlined creates a weird dissonance that feels very odd to a lot of millennials, where the previous generation fostered the expectation to own and not to rent, but millennials just can't afford it. For this episode, I also talked to a few millennials to put some faces to the facts. Aileen puts this expectation that she's been given by the previous generation this way. You know, bricks and mortar is like a phrase people say quite a lot here. Like, got to have bricks and mortar. That's, you know, that won't go away. You know, whatever other thing, you know, whether the banks crash or whatever, um, which I think is probably quite old fashioned now. And a lot of my other friends are renting much longer term, but um, still in my head, I think, a little bit. I also talked to Sue Heath about this situation. Where's the cutoff? When do people generally tend to want to live on their own? And when does it become a sign of not being successful to not be able to afford? That's an interesting way of putting it. Um, I I think uh, for many young people, the crunch point comes when they may have found the partner they want to live with. um, And... um, it's still quite difficult even to find a place to rent or, or certainly to buy, even on two incomes. Um, and so that sort of thwarted sense of not being able to move in with a partner, I think, is often quite a, a crunch point. Uh, I think as well, many young adults, by the time they're in their late 20s, perhaps think, you know, that there is this sort of social norm that by the time I'm 30, I should have you know ticked off these various markers of being a grown up. But of course, you know, it's, that's not how it is now. Many young people continue to, young adults continue to share way into their early 30s um, so the, the fact that you use you use the expression you know the extent to which someone feels they're not a successful adult um, is an interesting an interesting idea um, and I think 
given all the rhetoric around generation rent that, that is current in the UK and in other European countries, I think that sort of feeds into it. But the problems don't stop with the housing markets. In some cases, consequences can be dire, especially in the north of England. Evan Contopantelis again. Uh, one of the most shocking of your findings is that millennials are almost 50% more likely to die before they turn 50 when they live in the north than when they live in the south of England. How do you explain that? So since the 90s, we see that increase. So what happened in the 90s? Well, this is immediately post-Thatcher. So we have basically the, the raising of the north in terms of the, its industrial base. So we have a, a big generation of young men primarily that uh, grew up not knowing what to do with themselves. And that created a gap that has persisted since then. And, and we see that these deaths are primarily of despair. So you, see you have lots of suicides and they're primarily in men. You see it in women as well, but the, the difference is made up more by male deaths, first because they're more at risk at those ages, and second because we assume that because of stereotypes they're more affected by a deprivation. So the expectation for a man being 30 is to have a stable job and be able to support the family. I know this is a bit anachronistic, but certainly my parents would think that, you know, if you're 30 and you don't have a stable job, you are a failure as, as a young man. And th that can affect people's mental health profoundly. So you will see alcohol being a big part of somebody's life or, or drugs, and obviously that might lead to the unfortunate event of somebody taking their own lives. Chapter 2. The Housing Market and the Policies that Shape It So I, kind of unusually for our generation, I got married quite young, at 25. Um, so me and my, my husband at the time, um, he, well, he had more money than me, so we owned a house together. And when we broke up, I bought this house. I was working then for a luxury travel company and had like a, a more regular income. But I gave up that job because I was really unhappy in it about a year ago um, and then basically needed a lodger to help sort of top up the mortgage payments. It, luckily, it's a friend, a friend of mine wanted to move back to Manchester. So he's living in my box room. And um, yeah, it's quite a good arrangement for me, really. Can you tell me why you bought a house in the first place? Like, was it just natural to you? Um, yeah, I... Ah, oh, God, that's such a good question. Um, my ex came from quite a wealthy family. So he actually had money to buy a house like way before I would have. So then I was living with him in the house that he'd bought. So I kind of, I think I just kind of got used to that. And to be honest, like if you can get a mortgage, you can live in a much nicer place for less money per month because like a mortgage is less than you'd be renting, like pay for to rent the same property. So because I have a little boy as well, I didn't really want to live in like a flat. I wanted to live somewhere with a garden and I, I definitely couldn't afford to rent the house that I live in now. Um, so if you're privileged enough to have enough money to have a deposit on a house, then it's kind of the better way to do it. Um, although I am now locked in for 35 years, but <laughs> apart from that, it's, um, <laughs> apart from that little, little, uh, detail, it's, um, It's definitely better financially for me um, in the long run and the short run, in fact. To get some insight into the housing market, I talked to a property consultant. I'm not using his real name here to protect his privacy. We're in an unprecedented situation in terms of the level of residential development that's currently taking place within the city. It's it's not it's something that hasn't even been observed, you know, prior to when the kind of global economic crash happened in 2007. We're now seeing a level of delivery that is unprecedented. There's about 15,000 apartments and houses coming forward within, you know, in and around Manchester city centre in Salford at this moment in time. Why are all these apartments being built at this moment in time and who can't do it exactly are they for? Well, the reality is it is for people like millennials, you know, coming out of university at this moment in time um, and, and wanting to kind of stay in cities like, like Manchester or Leeds or Liverpool. So, but would you say that a lot of new properties that are being built, that they're actually being built with the goal to rent and not to sell in the end? 
Exactly, yeah. The, the majority of the properties going forward at this moment in time are, are for rent. And, and the reasons for that is because, you know, when it comes to actually development of finance, it's, it's quite a complicated situation. But um, to try and simplify that, uh, you know, a, a bank or, or an investment fund would need to be assured by a developer that they're going to make a reasonable return on, on lending the money in the first place. You know, development finance is one of the, the biggest costs to actually deliver in any kind of real estate project. Can that also mean that some of the properties are then being shared by house shares, for example? Because the reality is that a lot of people that came out of uni, just like if you just come out of uni, you can't actually mm -hmm. afford your own place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. The, I think the sharers market is a big driver for what is happening in the residential market at this moment in time in terms of what's coming forward for, for rental properties in particular. You look at the, the amount of two-bedroom apartments in particular that are coming forward in the market in, in most cities in the country at this moment in time in high-density developments. See, I mean, I'm, I'm in a similar situation. I, I share my rented property in, in the suburbs of Manchester with my fiancé. So, you know, we share the cost of paying for that accommodation and it works out significantly cheaper if you, have, you know you're sharing that with another person. So there's kind of a market response to, I guess, either something that people prefer to do or a situation that people are actually driven towards because it, it's the only way to make the opportunity to rent accommodation actually affordable. The fact that the majority of people now rent well into their 30s is now also reflected in public policy. Back to my conversation with Sue Heath. Um, this change in general society also is reflected in, in the change in policy. You mentioned in your book that in 2012 the share accommodation rate was extended from people under 25-year-olds to under 35-year-olds. Can you quickly explain what that policy is and what why that changed and what that means? Sure. The shared accommodation rate is a policy that was initially introduced specifically for under 25-year-olds and it relates to young people who are dependent on housing benefit for their housing. So it's these are young people people who are renting in the private center, sector and the SAR is um, set at the rate of an average shared house rent. The date you, you quote 2012, it was then extended to under 35-year-olds, which is a you know, huge difference between someone under 25 and someone who's just on the cusp of turning 35. It was justified at the time by uh, George Osborne, who was the then Chancellor, um, it, by saying that most young people live in shared housing, therefore housing benefit claimants shouldn't be treated any differently. But I think there's a big issue there about the difference in experience between someone who's renting at the bottom end of the house, shared housing market and young professionals, for example, who are living in sometimes very nice properties, um, albeit with all the problems and difficulties that that can come with in the rented sector. So could you also summarize this in a way as the state or policy saying it's now the norm for you to expect to live in shared housing until you're 35. Absolutely. That, that, it does seem to uh, suggest that, that is exactly what, what they, they feel is a reasonable, a reasonable uh, way to um, experience one's sort of housing uh, career. Um, yeah. I would say that there's probably um, an increased appetite and acknowledgement that people w will rent for a, you know, a period up to, you know, normally to the age of, of 35. But I think there is still always the ambition that one day people will own their own property or their own home and they will continue to rent for the foreseeable future. And that, you know, that change was pretty much driven by the policy change in the 1980s in the UK. This is worth taking a closer look at. This is Movie Tone. Lionel Gamlin reporting. Strap in for a little history lesson. Here's a news report from 1948. Aspen Gardens, the new block of council flats in Hammersmith, recently received their official blessing, so to speak, from Mr. Naren Bevan, Minister of Health, who referred to the housing situation in general. When the September figures are announced, it will be seen that uh, we have already reached the figure of 750,000 new houses that was... This is Nye Bevan. He was a Labour politician and the Minister of Health from 1945 to 1951. He was also a leading figure in the establishment of the National Health Service, the NHS. And here he is, ceremoniously inaugurating a new block of flats. In post-war Britain, there was a dire need for housing. 
On the subject of overcrowding, the minister pointed out the disadvantages of sharing homes. That um, uh, it's all right to, to have visits from your mother-in-law, but you don't want to live with her all the time. Funny. I know. But the important thing to note here is that at this time, council housing was popular across the party spectrum. When Winston Churchill was re-elected in 1951, the government turned conservative again. But they kept on building council housing. In fact, in 1951, Churchill's government built 300,000 council flats, more than any government before or since. Practically automatic. In addition, good arrangements are being made for garaging that important vehicle, the pram. This all changed in the 1980s. This morning, Margaret Thatcher outlined the most forward-looking and progressive plans for housing that any party has come up with since the war. For the first time, someone has gone back to basics. Thatcher's plan was to allow people who had lived in council housing for some time to buy the house that they've lived in. People want a home they can call their own. The last Conservative government encouraged councils to sell, but all too often Labour councils refused. This brought disappointment to many, many people. But this time we're going to make it a matter of the law of the land. If you've been a council tenant for at least three years, you'll have the right by law to buy your house and that's that. Whoever wanted to buy their place received a huge discount, from a third under market value to up to 50% if you had lived in your council house for over 20 years. This led to a situation where it was much cheaper to buy your council flat than to rent it. What you think of this policy depends on your political attitude, but the fact is that the income generated by selling off council flats was largely not put back into building new council housing, and these are now missing from the market as affordable housing. Um, there was some government in the UK that, that, that really uh, encouraged people to all be a nation of homeowners, and you know it, it would seem very unfair, in my opinion, for the younger generation to see our parents' generation, for example, who were able to buy a home with a 0% deposit. And the reality is for people in my generation is that we're, we're nowhere near in the same level of an equitable situation in comparison to that. This situation is hitting some of us particularly hard. So my name's Melanie. Um, I work as the communications lead in Canera. Canera is a support um, organisation. We're actually a social uh, enterprise. We're a non-for-profit business. We're based in East London. Canera is confronted with the challenges of the rising housing costs every day. So the main programmes that we run are uh, the rent support programme and Reframe, which is another tenancy support programme. So those are designed for people who have insecure housing for whatever reason and where they may be threatened with eviction by their landlord. And so we work with those families to prevent that eviction. But what we really want to do now and what we would like to sort of get out there a little bit more is the work that we can provide for private tenants as well because that's where we're seeing there is a very, very high eviction rate happening. There's a lot of vulnerable people now living in private accommodation rather than in social housing. And there's a great amount of need there for support services like ours. So that's the next step for us, is to see if we can provide that kind of support to private renters. As Melanie says, more and more people who should qualify for council housing now have to live in private arrangements. Remember the council house from earlier that Nye Bevan opened up in 1948? Some of those are now led by private landlords from people that bought their house in the 80s. And these private landlords now take twice as much rents as the neighboring flats. And those are still in public hands. But in theory, affordable housing should catch all those who can't afford high rents like these. But why isn't it? And what even is affordable housing? The definition of what is considered to be, as per the government's definition of what is considered to be affordable housing, is a 25% reduction on the current market rate for that kind of property. So if you were expected to pay, let's say, £1,000 per month for an apartment, the, the affordable provision within that apartment block would be rented at 750 Even if you agree with this definition, the fact is there is not enough affordable housing being built. So the the, the problem with it is that it has been a driver to improve the quality of design in urban areas, particularly in, in cities like Manchester, which has been relatively successful. But the issue around that is because of the 
drive towards delivering things of a certain standard of, of quality of design, you know, to build a 28 story tower with, which, which looks nice on the outside and functions well on the inside. It, it does cost a significant amount of money to, to actually deliver based on what the, you know, kind of local authorities want them to achieve because we don't want to be stuck in a situation where, where developers are building crap developments effectively like they were, you know, in the, in the sixties, seventies and, and eighties and, more recently in the, in the 90s and it, you know, bad design is, it still continues on. Basically, as government funding for public housing has been cut, real estate companies were allowed to build housing that does not include affordable housing at all. Manchester City Council often ignores its own guidelines for affordable housing provisions. As research by The Guardian found, of the 15,000 flats that were approved to be built in 2016 and 2017, none included what is considered affordable housing. It's very important that there are support services that are available for private renters because generally the context has been that if you're in the private rental sector, you really don't really have access to much support. If you're in the social housing sector, your your housing association has a statutory responsibility to make sure you don't end up homeless, even though that unfortunately still does happen but they have a responsibility to provide support before they pursue any kind of eviction proceedings in the private sector that just doesn't happen and people can be suddenly made evicted within the space of eight weeks with a no fault section 21 notice it's easy to forget that there are real people being affected by this the housing crisis is not just numbers and it's not just policies the consequences can be all too real. Being evicted can have an inc incredibly imp a big impact on your mental health. And imagine a situation where you're that high kind of stress, making decisions and sort of, you know, remembering all the details and, and finding even the motivation to go next to the next appointment in the next housing office is pretty difficult, you know. And so, yeah, people do, people do need support. That's what we're realizing is that people need support to be able to do that. So this is what Kinira and many NGOs like it are focusing on, keeping people where they are. And so far, Kinira has been quite successful. Um, having a kind of safe and secure home that you know isn't going anywhere, <laughs> that you can come and rest your head in, and you can cook for your friends and cook for your family and, and take your time and sleep and all that sort of stuff. Um, keeping that in the forefront of our minds and our work is kind of, I think, one of the reasons why we've been quite successful because we've prevented eviction across most of the families that we've worked with. And I think preventing eviction is really the key because once you've once a family is evicted, it's very, very difficult. I mean, the amount of stress that's caused for that person and that family with very little support services around, very little other housing options, you know, temporary accommodation is not very, not very nice and people staying in temporary accommodation a lot longer than they should. Part of the real problem is, in terms of property prices, is that, you know, like cities in Manchester and in Liverpool, there are a lot of areas within these cities and in and around the city centre that are really genuinely affordable to live in. But the problem is no one wants to move there because there's been such a systemic underinvestment in those areas over such a long period of time. You'd be amazed at the, the impact that a change of the environment can have on, on areas. But the problem is that local authorities have very, very limited amount of funds to actually deliver what they need to actually invest in, in these kind of areas to, to make them more attractive places to, to live. Chapter 3. A Brave New World. Let's hear it from another millennial. This is Laura. But you, so you were studying in the same city that you lived in, but then back then it was important to you to not study while at the same time living at home, even though you could have. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I wanted to go to uni there and it was good for what? For drama, the thing that I did. But I was like, really, I was like, I'm fiercely independent. So I was like, I'm not staying at home. Like I, I was just like, I want the uni experience. Um, so just because I'm going in the city that I'm from, that's not going to stop me. What effects does it have on our generation to live in an ever-changing environment? For many, it means insecurity or living in arrangements that they aren't entirely happy with. Professor Sue Heath has studied this and wrote about it in her book called Shared Housing, Shared Life. This is the situation that we find ourselves in, um, in your project under the same roof, a research project that you finished 2015, I think. Uh, you look at the kind of relationships that are formed within these spaces. So can you tell me what is the biggest source of discord in shared housing and why do people don't just wash their dishes? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Well, that is a big one. Um, uh, but I think at the core of it, um, of those, those, you know, those fights about things like who washes the dishes, who hasn't cleaned the bath, um, are concerns about privacy um, and the sense that in many shared housing households, uh, there often isn't that space and that that um, you know physical space and temporal space to actually just step back and be yourself and have the house to yourself. Feel that it's your own place particularly if you're you're renting that that space so I, I think privacy issues are often at the root of a lot of the concerns that that can arise in shared shared living arrangements so does it then make sense to maybe move in with someone who i'm already close with or is that the end of my relationship moving in with my best friend say it's a, it's a good good question i think it varies hugely um i think um often uh, I think increasingly young adults are having to move in with strangers if they're uh, geographically mobile it's quite difficult to pitch up and find people that you know um, but it isn't certainly it's no guarantee that moving in with someone is going to is going to um, uh, that you know is going to be a recipe for success and certainly we've heard all sorts of stories one end just sort of mildly amusing but the other end really quite distressing about the problems that can arise around privacy between people who had hitherto considered themselves to be friends um, you know, in one very extreme case, someone actually effect effectively divided the house in two um, and refused to spend time with someone who had been a, a good friend uh, in the last few months of the renting. Can you tell me more about that? I can't go into too much detail about it, but suffice to say uh, there was an issue over um, one of the friends getting a new partner and the other housemate feeling rather put out about this um, and feeling that it was a betrayal of their friendship and uh, really turning on the, the, the housemate and excluding her as I say physically excluding her from certain spaces in the house that was an extreme it is fair to say but what we found amongst the younger people some who were quite new to sharing quite enjoyed it they hadn't got to the cut-off point at that stage when we when we first met them others who who very much saw it as having a, a shelf life for them and who began to get particularly frustrated about these sorts of issues but often felt it wasn't worth raising as an issue because they were on a six-month contract they knew they would be out the door eventually it's quite interesting that the same generation that is decried to be the one that is ruined by by social media and their phones and are therefore less well trained in social relationships is then the one that is forced to or that does live in more complex social relationships absolutely uh, and one of the things that will increasingly intrigues me really is the increasing pattern for young adults to move every six months into yet another house share often with people who are total strangers and the house the space of a house you know which many people think of as their home traditionally has been such an intimate domestic space and one of the issues I guess which I'm very interested in is how how that might change amongst younger generations for that reason because either you're able to transform that space into something which is homely or it just becomes somewhere where you lay your head and you don't actually spend much time and if you are in the house you might choose to just hang out in your in your own room rather than um, socializing with the people you live with so then and this is what this show is about what happens when these people grow up and are then the new people that set the norm. Do you think that we're going to see the nuclear family, the model of that, be more and more passé and maybe new models of family emerging, maybe raising someone in a, in a house share um, yeah, and seeing a family that's not necessarily based on kinship but on friendship? Um, I think there is certainly an element of, of society where intentional sharing is not unusual. Um, and that includes younger people who move into, say, you know, a housing co-op, a shared housing co-op, people who choose to live in co-housing arrangements or co-living developments, which is enjoying a bit of a, a moment uh, in some larger cities. Um, but do I think that the, this means that the current generation will continue to share? My sense is that many young people who share are very keen to put it behind them, whether they will return to it as an option later in life possibly but I think at least initially the majority of sharers are very happy to to get their privacy back um, what they then may find of course is that if they've 
bought a property, for example, that they may actually only be able to afford to pay their, pay their mortgage if they actually take someone into their spare room. And we in- interviewed lots of people in our study who were in precisely that context. We weren't just interviewing people who were living in a sort of conventional private rented house share. My name's Laura. Um, I'm 27. I'm an actress and a theatre director. And I was living in Manchester for the whole of my life. I went to uni there and then I've moved to Canterbury in Kent because my mum moved down here maybe about six, seven years ago. And I moved to home to save some money and home just happens to be not in Manchester anymore. Laura moved back home a few years after university because she was traveling a lot as an actress and didn't see how it financially made sense to spend money on rent. There was like in the back of my mind the kind of thought of, well, you know, if I'm saving and I'm not paying rent, I I can save for a deposit for a flat or a house or something that, that I can get a mortgage on. But that was like a very like kind of distant uh scenario (laughs) so how's it going with your mum it's been strange but it's also been great because i have um i have had more exposable income um so i guess i guess there's been pros and cons really back to sue heath we have interviewed people who have experienced this notion of the, you know, the boomerang generation, boomerang kids who've left home and subsequently return. And I think it's not uncommon for that to be the case amongst students and certainly my own students. It's absolutely, unless they have a, a very concrete plans uh, once they graduate, many of them are fully expecting to return back to the parental home, at least for an, an initial period of time. It's an interesting proposition as you say it's not comfortable for either generation really it provides an opportunity for for adult children and their parents to perhaps renegotiate their relationship um, uh, that may or may not work <laughs> favorably but but I think for many young people it provides them with a with a, um, a sort of buffer zone really to allow them to perhaps save a bit of money before they then decide to to move out probably into a house share but uh, yeah it is becoming increasingly increasingly common in the UK for that to happen Men are almost twice as likely to still live at home up until they're around 30 years old. Do you have any explanation for that? Um, Well, there are a number of of explanations for that, I guess. I mean, firstly, it's... um Men tend to experience a number of sort of key life stage events at slightly later age in terms of you know marrying later, moving in with a partner later, becoming a parent slightly later than women. So there's there's always a slight disparity between sort of in demographic terms. Um, perhaps a more cynical uh, way of looking at it might be that perhaps young men are less um, prepared to live independently um, and may struggle initially on their own. But I think it's you know it's largely to do with um, um, uh, that that age difference between the sort of key life life moments experienced by men and women. Chapter four: Any takers? A lot of the property is owned by people in older generations, while a lot of the demand is with younger generations. So I looked at a solution that tries to combine the two. Okay, my name is Martha Wilkins and I work for Leeds City Council um, Adult Social Care and I coordinate Home Share. Home Share is about a householder with a spare room who needs some extra support and we find them a sharer um, to live in their spare room and in return the sharer offers up to 10 hours of support a week. Basically, Martha groups up older people who have a spare room with younger people who need a room. And apart from a small fee that is paid to the organization, no money is involved. Instead, the arrangement works through helping each other out. In many cities in Europe, home sharing is quite a common arrangement for students to live in while they're at university. Here's one of the home shares. That means she has a spare room and she's shared it with younger people for quite a while. I have owned my own home since 2003. It's a small house with a spare room. I have a mortgage on the property. Um, And I have lived here, like I say, since 2003, but decided to 
try the home share scheme from 2000 I think it's 16 and I have had three sharers through the home share scheme here in West Yorkshire um so yeah that's a brief introduction was it hard uh, for you to buy your house then when you bought it in 2003 no it was almost too easy it was just before the kind of economic problems that were global i started off with a very big mortgage that was very cheap and easy to get i would probably struggle now getting on the property ladder i was very fortunate to be able to get onto the property ladder i didn't have a deposit but i did have a secure income and a contract and I had always thought that I would have lodgers or house sheds because I prefer to live, although I own my own property, I always prefer to live with other people or have periods of time where it's nice to have other people in and around sharing a living space. And also because I live in quite a large cosmopolitan city, there are always lots of students and young people around, um, transient populations. So it's kind of lent itself to that being a possibility a little bit more. So it's been a very positive thing for me, and obviously I was um, I I hit the and entered the housing market at a time where uh, mortgages were uh, reportedly though easy but somewhat irresponsibly given out as well. So the penalty you know is is now being passed on to younger people and millennials because it's much much harder for them to secure a place on the property ladder. Yeah, I'm also very interested in, in the particular dynamics that exist because what I found quite a lot is that the older you are, the more likely you are to own a house and to have a room. And then the younger you are, the more likely it is that you can't afford buying your own house or sometimes not even renting your own place. So is that something you find that your scheme addresses perfectly? Definitely. It's got such mutual intergenerational benefits. As you say, a lot of the housing stock, people owning their own houses are older people. So I think you're absolutely right that um, for younger people, because of the housing crisis and because houses cost so much to buy and even to rent, the average, there were probably the cheapest rent in Leeds is about £600. You know, and if you're a student or if you're a graduate, if you're just starting work, it's very difficult to afford that rent. So this is a solution for younger people who would like to give something back and live in a really nice house. Do you think house sharing could be a solution to the basic problem of injustice between generations and maybe less so between millennials and you but more also between people that are maybe 10 20 years older than you because those are in fact the people that own most of the places but maybe don't yeah, need so all the space i agree with that yeah i do think it's the older generations that do own properties and have a lot of space for example my parents and grandparents have a lot of space and own more than one property and I think that is something which is is a, is a hugely positive thing for them to think about especially if they do get a little bit older. Home sharing as Martha told me is a solution that doesn't just work on the logistical level it also works on the personal level. I've got um, an old lady at the moment who lives in Leeds she's 98 and she's got four bedrooms and it's a beautiful house and she had three sons growing up and the house was always filled with people and a really happy home and her husband has died now and she really wanted to share it with a younger person because she felt she's got a lot to offer. She's got a, you know, a beautiful house, she's got a really nice, interesting, funny personality. So I found her a sharer who's in his 20s um, and they play Scrabble together in the evenings and their relationship is beneficially mutual. She rang me up a couple of weeks ago and said she was really worried about her sharer and I asked her why. She said, well, he's had really bad tonsillitis and he's gone out. And I'm worried about him. So it's we're learning all the time. It's not just the young sharer who is concerned about the householder it's a two-way relationship and often the young person can benefit just as much just one, thing to, just, just one yeah. last thing to Go say on. that yeah. um all the home shares in the uk 
are part of Shared Lives Plus. So we get support from Shared Lives Plus. So anybody who's interested, um, wherever they live in the UK, in um, becoming a, a, a sharer with Home Share, if they'd like to get in touch with Shared Lives Plus. Chapter 5. Is this it? Housing is just one of many slices that form the big cake of millennial life. We're the ones to see the rise of the internet, 9-11, the financial crash of 2008, and in many ways, we are the ones to deal with the consequences. We are also the best traveled and the most diverse generation ever. We are, funnily enough, also the generation that gets divorced much less than previous generations, even if you account for the lower marriage rate. And all these things shape us, they shape how we see the world, and I think they give us a unique perspective on life. I don't know what we'll make of it, but I do know that for thousands of years, older generations decried the following ones as entitled. As a data scientist, it's Professor Evan Contrapantelis' job to have an overview of a staggering amount of factors and problems. So at the end of our conversation, I wanted to know how he would begin to make the world a better place. I would be running uh, in politics if I had the answer to that, I'm afraid. But it is within the power of the young people to change that. How do you change that? Get involved, vote, vote them out. Vote what you would like to see. There must be some candidates out there that will stand up for you. Maybe across party as well. If there is no party that will satisfy you, look at your local councillors, see their CVs, vote in more women, try to make happen that equality in politics to begin with. And if you vote genuine people in, even if there is no party that satisfies you, and personally, there is no party that satisfies me either at the minute, um, and that's a very good starting point. When I grow up I will be tall enough to reach the branches That I need to reach to climb the trees You get to climb when you're grown up When I Grow Up is researched, produced and edited by me. Sarah Findingus. Scoring is by myself with additional music by Malt Tabulated Sounds. And the song you're listening to right now is by Tim Minchin, taken from the musical version of Matilda, also a very millennial movie. Thanks to Laura Aileen, an anonymous property consultant, to Mel from Kinera, and to everyone else that shared their thoughts and stories with me. Thanks to Sue Heath. Thanks to Martha Wilkins, to Evan Contrapantelis, and to Andonis for the pronunciation help. Evangelos Contopandelis When the sun comes up and I will watch cartoons until my eyes go square And I won't care cause I'll be all grown up Thanks to everyone at Reform Radio for making this possible and thanks to Megan for not getting tired of me talking about housing. And the absolute backbone of this episode has been the Office for National Statistics. So a big thanks goes out to all the lovely data nerds everywhere in the world. We could not do it without you. You can find more information and links to articles by my guests in the show notes. And if you like the show or have any feedback, let me know on Twitter at EtherealSeraphin. You can also send me an email at hi at seraphin.tv. That's H-I at S-E-R-A-F-I-N dot TV. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Okay, one last thing. If you really like the show, then tell a friend about it. It helps out. Okay, that's it. Bye.